you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Um, but my name is Erin once again. My pronouns are she, her. And um, as always, we begin this first Sunday of New Year um, with a land acknowledgement to honor the Native people that existed here before us. And so tonight we honor the first peoples of current day downtown Phoenix, the Thana Otham Nation. In the words of Lisa Sharon Harper, they were and are here. We see you, we honor you, and we thank you for laying foundations of harmony, balance, truth, and honor. Thank you for stewarding the land where Creator settled your people. We bless you. We bless your elders past, present, and emerging. Well, over the last, I'm going to say more about this book, but this book, The Warmth of Other Suns, is what I'm titling this sermon tonight because it's been the only thing I've been reading for a while, and also it's the thickest book I've ever attempted to read. So there's that, but it is here if you ever want to... thumb through it or even look it up later, Um, but just want to preface that. That is the theme of tonight's message. My grandmother's hands were soft and wrinkled, a softness earned through years of picking prickly cotton and preparing countless meals, collard greens, shucking corn, kneading dough, baking cakes, dancing, singing, running, hiding, escaping. At the time, I didn't grasp the mystery within her hands, a mystery woven from experiences I knew nothing about but always yearned to understand. Sometimes I feel like I encounter ghosts. Between lines written in books, the aftermath of a thoughtful documentary or a soulful rendition of a Negro spiritual. Like an illusion, there are moments when I believe I'm hearing things, The trials they endured, the places they wept, the scars they fled, though horrific, possess an unexplainable, hidden sacredness. A cultural identity lies buried in the soil. A rich history concealed beneath the horrors of the black-lived experience in the South. As many of you know, Black South is the name of the nonprofit Kendall and I plan to start in 2025. And its name, Black South, serves as an anthem declaring the sacredness of the South. It is a deliberate effort to remember, discover, learn, and contribute to the Black story that began in the Americas, specifically the South. The South is sacred. And my ancestors who took part in the Great Migration seem to somehow be calling me back. And I feel that they beckon me to sit and to listen to the retelling of their stories, like faint whispers audible only to those who want to listen. And these stories reclaim forgotten histories, asserting that the South was sacred, albeit horrific. Yet it carries a cultural identity that can only be reclaimed by revisiting the soil. And so we come to the warmth of other suns. I have this distinct memory that nobody can tell me didn't happen because of how vividly I recall it. You know what that feels like? Like, ain't nobody can tell me this didn't happen because I know what I remember. But years ago, my mother told me she read The Warmth of Other Suns, this book. 
And she said she loved it because it delved into the great migration and experience shared by my granny and many ancestors as they fled the horrors of Mississippi and sought refuge in Chicago, yearning for the warmth of other suns. What amazes me is that my mother now denies ever reading the book or making that statement. This is honestly unexplainable. Over the holidays, I was like, Mom, but wait, like, I'm only reading this book because I remember you said you read it and you loved it because it was our family history. Crazy, right? But as black folks say, I'm standing on business. Can't nobody tell me it didn't happen. I'm still believing what I said. And so it remains unexplainable. A recollection of a reality that supposedly never occurred but serves as the sole motivation for my decision to read this book in this present moment. Perhaps it was a dream, or maybe I shifted to another timeline or another dimension. But regardless of the how, here we are in this moment. And what adds another layer of significance to my reading is that my family hails from Yalabusha County, Mississippi, as descendants of cotton pickers, slaves, and sharecroppers. Isabel Wilkerson, the esteemed author of this book, spent 15 years compiling this information. She conducted over 1,500 interviews with individuals who migrated from the South to the North and the West. And from these 1,500 interviews, she chose three specific people to chronologically narrate their stories. And remarkably, One of the three is the story of Ida Mae Brandon Gladney, born in Yalabusha County, Mississippi, working as a cotton picker and sharecropper, just like my granny. As I've read this book, it feels like I'm living their lives, because this is not just a story for me. This is my history. The book is shaping and molding me during a season where we're establishing a nonprofit centered around reverse migration. But there is no reverse migration without talking about why there was a great migration in the first place. I'm continually learning more about my family's history and striving to reclaim the cultural identity rooted in the soil of the South. In the next few moments, I want to share a summary of impactful excerpts from this book and then explore together how Jesus also invites us to envision the warmth of other sons. I'll begin here. Isabel Wilkerson writes this. They fled as if under a spell or a high fever. They left as though they were fleeing some curse wrote the scholar Emmett J. Scott. They were willing to make almost any sacrifice to obtain a railroad ticket, and they left with the intention of staying. From the early years of the 20th century to well past this middle age, nearly every black family in the American South, which meant nearly every black family in America, had a decision to make. They were sharecroppers losing at settlement, Typist wanting to work in an office. Yard boys scared that a single gesture near the planter's wife could leave them hanging from an oak tree. They were all stuck in a caste system as hard and unyielding as the red Georgia clay, and they each had a decision before them. In this, they were not unlike anyone who ever longed to cross the Atlantic 
or the Rio Grande. It was during the First World War that a silent pilgrimage took its first steps within the borders of this country. The fever rose without warning or notice or much in the way of understanding by those outside its reach. It would not end until the 1970s and would set into motion changes in the North and the South that no one, not even the people doing the leaving, could have imagined at the start of it or dreamed would take nearly a lifetime to play out. Over the course of these six decades, some six million black Southerners left the land of their forefathers and fanned out across the country for an uncertain existence in nearly every other corner of America. The Great Migration would become a turning point in our history. It would transform urban America and recast the social and political order of every city it ever touched. It would force the South to search its soul and finally to lay aside a feudal caste system. It grew out of the unmet promises made after the Civil War, and through the sheer weight of it, helped push the country towards the civil rights revolutions of the 1960s. They would cross into alien lands with fast, new ways of speaking and carrying oneself, and with hard-to-figure rules and laws. The new world held out higher wages, but staggering rents that the people had to calculate like a foreign currency. The places that they migrated to were big, frightening, and already crowded. Places like New York, Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and smaller, equally foreign cities like Syracuse, Oakland, Milwaukee, Newark, or Gary. Each turned into a receiving station and port of refuge, wrote the poet Carl Sandburg, then a Chicago newspaper reporting documenting the unfolding migration that happened there. The story of the Great Migration is among the most dramatic and compelling in all chapters of American history. Its imprint is everywhere in urban life. The configuration of the cities we all as we know them, the social geography of black and white neighborhoods, the spread of the housing projects as well as the rise of a well-scrubbed black middle class, along with the alternating waves of white flight and suburbanization, all of these grew directly or indirectly from the response of everyone touched by the Great Migration. So too rose the language and music of urban America that sprang from the blues that came with the migrants and dominance of our air, and dominates our airwaves to this day. So too came the people who might not have existed or became who they did had there not been a great migration. People as diverse as James Baldwin and Michelle Obama, Miles Davis and Toni Morrison, Spike Lee and Denzel Washington, and anonymous teachers, store clerks, steel workers, and physicians were all products of the Great Migration. Over time, the story of the Great Migration has suffered distortions that have miscast an entire population. From the moment the immigrants set foot in the North and West, they were blamed for the troubles of the cities they fled to. They were said to have brought family dysfunction with them, to more likely be out of work, unwed parents, and on welfare than the people already there. The actions of the people in this book 
one being Ida Mae, like my granny, were both universal and distinctly American. Their migration was a response to an economic and social structure not of their making. They did what humans have done for centuries when life became untenable. What the pilgrims did under the tyranny of British rule. What the Scots-Irish did in Oklahoma when the land turned to dust. What the Irish did when there was nothing to eat. What the European Jews did during the spread of Nazism. What the landless in Russia, Italy, China, and elsewhere did when something better across the ocean called to them. What binds these stories together was the back against the wall, reluctant yet hopeful search for something better, any place but where they were. They did what human beings looking for freedom throughout history have always done. They left. My granny, Christine Willie, Ida May, in this book, and the novelist Richard Wright rode the train to the receiving station of Chicago to feel, as he as a novelist put, the warmth of other suns. What is ultimately fascinating to me in this book is that Ida May's story recounts what it was like to pick cotton in the South. That's what my granny did. It's actually funny to think about the first time I heard that my granny picked cotton. It was a Thanksgiving dinner. We're all in her small packed apartment up in Chicago. And all of us are just talking randomly and about random things, you know, football's on the TV, we're getting plates of food and all of that. And somehow granny, like she just, she sensed past, but at the time she was just like, yeah, I used to pick cotton. And it was like, everybody shut the TV off, like looked at each other, like, wait, what? You picked cotton, granny? Like, isn't that from slavery? Like what world am I living in to to think that my granny who was alive, like standing in front of me had actually had this experience of picking cotton. And then to read about it here in Ida May's story is quite fascinating. And so I want to read a little bit more about what that experience was like. Ida May says in this book, she's not going to be much of any help in the field. She had never been able to pick a hundred pounds. 100 was the magic number. It was the benchmark for payment when day pickers took to the field. 50 cents for 100 pounds of cotton in the 1920s, the gold standard of cotton picking. It was like picking 100 pounds of feathers, 100 pounds of lint dust. It was one of the most back-breaking forms of stoop labor ever known, wrote the historian Donald Hawley. It took some 17 bowls to make a single pound of cotton which meant that Ida May would have to pick 7,000 bulls to reach 100 pounds. It meant reaching past the branches into the cotton flower and pulling a soft lock of cotton the size of a walnut out of its pod, doing this 7,000 times and turning around and doing the same thing the next day and the day after that. The hands got cramped from the repetitive motion of picking. The fingers fairly locked in place and calloused from the pricks of the barbed five-pointed cockleburrs that cupped each precious bowl. The work was not so much hazardous as it was mind-numbing and endless, requiring them to pick from the moment the sun peaked over the tree line to the moment it fell beneath the horizon and they could no longer see. 
After 10 or 12 hours, the picker, the pickers could barely stand up straight for all the stooping. I reached out to my great uncle Boozy, who is 84 and still living, the oldest relative on my mom's side, to hear about his experience picking cotton. After reading Ida May's account of cotton picking, my curiosity deepened, wondering how many pounds of cotton did my great uncle have to pick? First and foremost, he described sharecropping as a form of slavery, emphasizing the arduous labor involved. And he reflected on those challenging days, saying to me, you don't know nothing about that now. And he went on to share, oh, I picked 200, 250, sometimes 300 pounds of cotton. Wow. Sonny Boy, which was another great uncle, said he picked 300 pounds of cotton every day. But me, he said, I picked between 200 and 300 pounds of cotton. And in that moment of my great uncle recollecting that story to me, I felt a surge of both rage and courage. This newfound reality assured me beyond a shadow of a doubt that my very existence is a miracle. My ancestors not only survived the Atlantic crossing to become part of the slave trade, but also endured sharecropping, cotton picking, the era of Jim Crow. Various forms of violence, shootings and lynchings, They braved the horrors of Mississippi and the Jim Crow South, persevered through the Great Migration, and moved to Chicago to embark on a new life with uncertain paths. My parents later navigated the civil rights movement and raising four children in the city and suburbs of Chicago before eventually relocating to here, Phoenix, Arizona. Resilience, vibrancy, and life coursed through my veins. And this revelation reaffirms that we can overcome anything. If we've made it this far, there's an innate belief that we have a purpose here on this earth. And there is indeed something we must do here. Our scripture passage tonight comes out of Mark 4, 12 through 17, verses 23 and 25, which says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the era of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed Jesus. As I'm engrossed in reading this book, I can't help but feel that this is where Jesus casts a vision for another place, another way of life, a way to invite listeners and followers to yearn also for the warmth of other sons, to engage in a movement that fosters flourishing for all of creation, to embrace a liberating kind of love. Can you sense, even before reaching the destination, the warmth of other suns? Can you let the warmth you imagine, but don't yet feel, guide you to discover and create spaces where it is possible? I don't necessarily have a charge or a challenge, but just want to create a moment here in this message where we can sit and listen And be still with Jesus in this moment. So let us pray, Lord Jesus, what do you want us to know? And what do you want us to do with the warmth of other sons? Lord Jesus, you too were a migrant, journeying through the land to share your message of love and salvation. Help us in our daily lives to follow in your footsteps, embracing the warmth of other suns as we encounter the challenges and opportunities that lie before us. Would you grant us the strength to dismantle barriers that perpetuate caste systems and inequalities, just as the Great Migration challenged the oppressive structures of its time? Would you help us to be instruments of change, advocates for justice, and bearers of the light that dispels the shadows of prejudice and discrimination? Help us in every place we occupy to create space where all people can practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. In your name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.